Um, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the third edition of the University of Ghana Law in Crisis series. As the leader in legal training and scholarship in Africa, the University of Ghana School of Law ensures that its students and faculty have access to valuable knowledge resources across the globe for research and training purposes. In addition to this, the University of Ghana School of Law leads in contributing knowledge and training to meet the needs of our country, sub-region, continent, and the entire world. It is for this reason that when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, the University of Ghana School of Law started the Law in Crisis series as a virtual forum for reflecting on pertinent questions of law and policy that have been triggered by the ongoing um, pandemic. The first two iterations of the series examined substantive challenges posed to constitutional and democratic governance in Ghana and the West African sub-region. The discussions covered issues on election resiliency measures, exercise of executive powers in response to COVID-19, policing, international dispute settlement and commercial contracting, as well as changes to criminal justice responses in the face of the, the pandemic. We are glad to see some of the recommendations made on this platform reflected in some aspects of our national um, life. In this third edition, our focus is how to adapt tax, labor, and corporate regulation to a post-COVID-19 world. So for the theme, so the theme for today's session is adapting tax, labor, and corporate regulation to a post-COVID-19 world, the fierce agency of now. To help us with this discussion is a rich panel that will assess the current regime regulating taxes, labor, and corporate entities within the context of the pandemic and offer suggestions and solutions for legislative responses to these challenges. When you have a panel as knowledgeable and as experienced as mine today, your biggest challenge becomes time, particularly when you aim to conclude within one and a half hours. Yet, we will make the most of the time and we will be happy to hear your perspective as well as from the, from the participants in the chat and then the Q&A box. My panelists will have 10 minutes each in their opening remarks and then two minutes for responses to questions from our participants, clarifications or rebuttals in, in their presentations. And then towards the end, they will have six minutes each for their recommendations and closing remarks. For our panel today, now let me go straight to introduce to you a very, very rich panel. We are going to have a lot an, an interesting time today. So on the panel today, we have Dr. Abdallah Ali Nachia. Dr. Abdallah is a senior lecturer at the School, School of Law here at the University of Ghana. We also have Mr. Seth Asante. He's a partner and then head of financial institutions and capital markets. He's also the head of energy and infrastructure at the law firm Bentiential, Lecha and Ankoma. We have also Kingsley Ousu Eule, he's a partner at PwC with vast experience in the, in, the, in the areas under discussion today. We also have Mr. Daniel Antrenuya, he's the head and then tax, uh, the head, uh, uh, the head at the taxi, uh, tax 
policy unit at the Ministry of Finance. And we also have um, Angela JC. Angela is a partner at, corporate, at the Corporate and Commercial Department. He, she's also the head of pensions, employment and immigration, head of business and industry at the law firm Bentiential Lecha and Ankuma. My name is Mrs. Clara Kasati, and I will be moderating today's um, um, session. So without much ado, let's go straight to our discussion for today. I will start straight with you, Kingsley. And we are going to start looking at tax. We will start with tax. Now, as I noted earlier on, Kingsley is a partner at PwC, and he leads the PwC mergers and acquisitions tax, international tax, transfer pricing, and private, pri private client services practice in Ghana. He also has vast experience in these areas across the, the sub-region. So Kingsley, in 10 minutes, share with us your perspectives on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the activities of taxpayers on one hand, and then tax revenue of the, of the government of Ghana on the other hand. In doing this, I want you to, 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 to look at it within the context of pre-existing legislative and regulatory framework, as well as the legislative and regulatory responses to address the issues arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So okay. Kingsley, we are yeah. happy to have you, and we are very grateful that you made time to share your perspective with us today. Thank you, Clara. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I will start my presentation uh, by looking at the beginning of the outbreak of the pandemic and how citizens and taxpayers actually adapted right, to the, the, the consequences or the effect of the pandemic by shifting or moving from offices into their various homes and basically moving their, their work to, to their, their, their home, moving their schools or children their children's schools, obviously, to their homes, and um, how they managed, right, or adapted in complying with the tax obligations placed upon them by the law. And what really is in the law to respond to the um, pandemic that broke and how government and the revenue authority have responded, right, in terms of measures to to ease the burden of compliance on, on, on taxpayers and eventually the other measures they brought in to cushion taxpayers. So, I mean, we would all, you would all agree with me that this pandemic has really been a very unpredictable one. One that started slowly, that we all felt that we could manage, we could have managed by this time. It's largely remained unpredictable the consequences have been so enormous on individuals and businesses. Um, taxpayers, I mean, as taxpayers, we have individuals and you have businesses. Since the outbreak, as I indicated earlier, businesses have to move or people, employees for, for that matter, had to move from the offices back home, working remotely became a very big, how do you call it, part of our lives. So the normal conventional lives that we know of for, for working people changed. 
waking up, sorting out technological issues, when all your facilities for working have, have been built up in offices, were moved back, I mean, home. So the first challenge that every worker, every taxpayer, whether business or individual had to deal with, was really adapting to working from home. And the, the adaptation or, I mean, taxpayers adapting to working from home really did not affect the tax obligations that were placed upon them by the tax law. Um, the, basically in Ghana, since the outbreak or even before the outbreak, we, we have quite a number of laws. The, the first one that is really um, important is the Revenue Administration Act. The Revenue Administration Act essentially is the law that revenue administration in Ghana uses to administer um, taxes in Ghana. The state of that law at the point of the outbreak was this. Tax administration was largely being done electronically and then also through hard copies and face-to-face -face meetings, right? So you had a lot of meetings face-to-face -face with one of my panelists on, on, on the team, on the, I mean, on the call here today, um, Mr. Daniel Noah and, and his crew. And all the offices of GR related, you, you tend to go there interface face-to-face. -face. But with the outbreak and the protocols that were established, you couldn't do that any longer. You have to either do it remotely or jump onto a call like Zoom and, um, and, and speak to them, pay your taxes. So what happened? The revenue authority based on the law came up with a guideline that basically moved away the process of administering tax face-to-face -to, -face to electronic platform. So in terms of payment of taxes, every taxpayer was required to make bank transfers or payments into the, into the accounts of GRA. In terms of filing, they created um, emails that you could send um, your returns to online. You know, and all these were done within the um, current um, provisions of the law. But what really um, is the case is that, but for COVID, I'm sure we pretty much wouldn't have moved as faster um, as GRA did. The law has been there. You have, I mean, uh, provisions on creating electronic document system for tax administration, but that was not fully, you know, um, implemented. You could still do it even before the outbreak. You could still pay taxes using your bank, I mean, your bank EFT, electronic, electronic bank transfers. You could file returns by, by dropping them through an email. There was also a system that was being created under the government of Ghana's um, e-governance program, and then the, the, a, pro, a, pro, a program that they call ITAP. But with all these two programs running, you know, with the objective of um, moving payment of taxes and the administration of taxes um, to an online or electronic platform, that was not completely done. But obviously, uh, the outbreak catalyzed 
right, catalyze that process a bit. Today, as I speak, I mean, here, a lot of advance has been made um, within that space, but there's still room for improvement because under the Revenue Administration that I talked about, which is really the principal administration, tax administration act or law in the country, the Commissioner General, and for that matter, the entire Ghana Revenue Authority and, and government have the power to set up electronic document system. That, as I indicated earlier, has been done to some extent. But I seated here, I will not be able to open an account, okay? I will not be able to open an account here with my PIN, login, send a return um, to, to GRE unless I use an email, right? I won't be able to use my platform to, to um, do certain payments unless I go through the bank system. Um, about a few weeks ago, we, they also started using Momo. You know, Momo is really a bus, a bus. I mean, like it's, Momo is really, um, how do you call it? It's, it's a payment platform that, has, that is also catching up. So Momo is being used, bank transfers are being, are being made for payment of taxes. Filing is being done electronically. But we really need an ERP, like a bigger platform where um, every taxpayer can be there as we working remotely, you know, in a safer, you know, environment, we can um, comply with the tax law. So, so that's, that's really on the um, tax administration. And if we look at the country also widely and, and also within the Committee of Nations, the World Bank, for instance, runs this world, I mean, world of um, ease of doing business, the World Bank ease of doing business. Out of 190 countries, Ghana, you know, placed 118th in 2019 when they last did it. Basically, cost of doing business in Ghana is high, or the country as a destination for investors is high. There's also a parallel survey that is run by PwC and the World Bank, and it is called paying taxes. Paying taxes looks at the number of times you are supposed to pay tax in a year, the number of hours, most importantly, that taxpayers spend okay, on compliance with the tax regulation. It will interest you to note that in 20, I mean, 2020 using 2018 numbers, it took an average taxpayer 226 hours to comply with the tax laws. Why is it so? It's, it's so because, well, most of the taxes, I mean, we have a number, quite a number of taxes, number one. Number two, the taxes, before you can comply with them, you need to interface. But we're dealing, or we are in a time where we should not be interfacing, we should have social distancing. Um, employers have a burden placed upon them under, I mean, under Article 24 of the Constitution to create, um, how do you call it, safer environment for the people. And, and so if you can't find the, the, the safer environment in the offices because you can't really trust where everyone is coming from and the number of contacts they've had before coming, 
it is better for you to allow them to work remotely, right? And, and, and if they're working remotely, not to cut you, but you have one minute to summarize for this, yeah. Wow, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yes, so, just, for this, just for this opening remarks, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, um, basically, these two surveys tells you that we are not really where we want to be. The task loss, thankfully, you know, have been carved out in such a way that if we were to have fully operational electronic platforms, compliance with taxes can be done with ease and it will reduce the cost of doing business for employers and taxpayers in general. And I'm, I'm happy that I know that government is doing something I mean, on, on that, they've basically rolled out business reform program, which is going to run for three years, within which they are going to create a one-stop shop, you know, for all these regulators, so that taxpayers and people who have businesses to deal with or to do with GRA, the Registrar General's Department, you know, and National Pensions Regulatory Authority and SNEDS, you know, can walk in and then do, do it um, at a go. My prayer and hope is that they can actually roll out a platform for everyone to remotely assess a platform, you know, um, or to remotely assess the services. Thank you, Clara. Okay. Thank you very much, Kingsley, um, for that. We'll come back. There are some other issues to that, that raise, particularly re with respect to the work that you've been doing that talks that also impacts on it how how long it takes to comply with your tax obligations and all of that but before we come then let's bring in daniel as i noted earlier on daniel is the head um, 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 of the tax tax policy unit at the ministry of finance and he has over 32 years of experience in tax administration and tax policy his last assignment prior to taking up the position at the Ministry of Finance was at the monitoring and evaluation, was a, a monitoring and evaluation manager with the Ghana uh, Revenue Authority. So yes, we have the right persons to talk to the issues. And then for, for Daniel, of the, the failure of some businesses is, 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 has clearly impacted on tax mobilization globally. We, we know that the government's main source of revenue for running the state and providing social services is from tax. Although government may resort to borrowing to fund certain interventions, including interventions to mitigate the effects of the pandemic. So with dwindling tax revenues and struggling businesses and rising unemployment, there are issues as to whether or not government is able to, to, to mobilize sufficient taxes I want you to share your insights with us from the regulatory um, aspect. What are some of the, regula the regulations that have hindered or aided us in tax mobilization? And then what are the policy options you think are available to us to mitigate these concerns? I would also like you in, 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 in your presentation to also address some of the issues that came up from Kingsley's um, presentation particularly about compliance for, for, for tax taxpayers. Thank you very much for joining us, Daniel. 
and then would like to hear your perspectives right away. Good, after, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for the opportunity to um, share ideas on this platform. There's one thing that we've come to understand in tax policy. A tax policy is not just a government issue. So sometimes when people say, I talk about government, I'd fear using we coming out with policies and coming out with administration. Because at the end of the day, we discuss everything. Um, quite a number of the panelists will let you know that there are quite a number of things we discuss with stakeholders before we actually come out with policies and even with implementation. Um, I'll start with what I think the last thing that can be said since I'm supposed to respond. And then I'll come to some figures. Um, what I'll say is that the doing business uh, methodology needs to be looked at and reviewed carefully, especially when we are applying it to countries. Because the sample looks at more of somebody who is a small scale manufacturer, more than even those in retail and other, other sectors of the economy. And so, yes, it's a good measure, but we need to look at it in terms of what covers in the sample, using it to you do the kind of generalizations that sometimes we do. It's an issue I've talked on several times and I've raised it several times. It's nothing new to some of the people I'm talking to. Now, when we look at the COVID and effect, its effect on government revenue and even in, on taxpayers, um, in the early days of COVID, there was a lot of uncertainty. And at that time, the sort of did quite a number of simulations. So government revenue, GDP was supposed to fell from the projected, the projected to about 1.60.9, up to 1.6. There's been, been quite fluid looking at it. I want to look at revenue in nominal terms. The initial target was for 47.2 billion. Um, Ghana see this basically as revenue. Mid-year revised it to 42.7%. Now, as at October, and at least we have some good news there, the, we've sort of exceeded the revised um, budget for the period up to October, not for the year. By a little over using GRA collections, rather than all our recommendations, by about 5.5%, about just slightly above. Yeah, we are not near the initial target of 47.2, which was in the budget. But the revised one, at least month on month, we are exceeding. And hopefully by the end of the year, we will exceed that 42. As to whether we'll get a 47 or not, is um, something that we are still looking at. As I say, though we are in December, the situation is fluid. We do most of our um, collections for the year actually in December. And the good news is that um, for side of PAYE, which isn't doing too well, and I'll come to why in a few minutes, um, all the others seem to be doing well. Corporate taxes seems to be doing well. And so it's expected that we'll, see that we'll get the corporate tax target for the mid-year, and it will be close to what we planned at the beginning of the year. So in that sense, we sort of have some cushion that um, is more inbuilt into our tax structure than um, just the fact that the effect of COVID only. I talked about PAYE 
that POI is suffering a bit and is understood. For example, when their targets were being prepared for the year, we expected that there'll be some increases in salaries and wages, or about 10% is, uh, is not news to anybody that for most of the large copies, nobody really has increased the salaries. What's been done is they've maintained the basically at the 2019 levels. And so that gap, that amount that I was expected to come in, just didn't come in. And, and as, as that, we can expect a period will be wrong. So, and also um, health, which has a large, which is a large proportion of government, in government employees and raising quite a number of revenue, uh, amount of revenue, also is uh, had the was it the exemptions on salaries and then the additional allowances that were paid. And so that also created a gap from between April and uh, September. The amount exemption was around two hundred eighty-eight million Ghana cities, covering about one hundred fifty-six thousand. Um, to 172,000 employees. So it's quite a large chunk of revenue in that sense. So PAYE has taken a hit. Um, as I said, fortunately, on the other hand, because gold was doing well, rural royalties uh, brought in a lot more. I mean, at a point, gold prices was above 2,000. It's now around $1,850. So some, some of those interventions have helped. And even on the, uh, we have seen a little drop of taxes, quite a large chunk of revenue. SIS tax, which was previously, this year seems to be doing a little bit better. Um, and I suspect most of it comes from SIS tax stamp policy, which is now yielding dividends in terms of that, um, yes, instead of the introduction, because of the introduction of that system. Now, some sectors have suffered. Airport tax has gone down by about 50%, as to be expected. I mean, we are having the kind of movements we're having. Education has had challenges. Some schools have moved to um, home. And so those who are within the education value chain, the school feeding, those who would be preparing food for them, transport sector, and all those things who are involved in the school value chain have had taken a hit. So what is coming from them would automatically be lower. Um, tourism has, its, has had its issues. And so quite, there are some major sectors. The only thing is that when you look at the sectorial contributions to, to revenue, a lot of these are in the informal sector, the self-employed sector, which wasn't contributing that much to revenue anyway, because it's an untapped source which we are working on to tap. But because they were not contributing that much to revenue, their um, contribution now, though it has gone down, hasn't had the kind of impact we have had in the large corporates, if the large corporates had been hit in the same way. And so that's what gives us some comfort in terms of, uh, in terms of revenue. And as I said, because of the input, we are out System, for example, for employee PY is the system itself is value. So basically, for on the in the taxpayer level, is why you pay tax on what you earn. It's a percentage of what you earn. So you don't earn anything that is taxable. 
automatically you won't have to pay any tax on it. And so it sort of takes off the tax burden where if it was a fixed amount, then you would have a problem. Because if it's you're supposed to pay a thousand cities a year, what it means is that whether you make money or not, you're paying a thousand cities. So it would have been an issue. The other thing on the side of tax payers that uh, government did, and I think um, Kinsley has talked about some of them, so I won't repeat them. But then the other thing that was been, had been done was in terms of filing. So for vehicle income tax and, and, and tax stamps, what was done was, was that the first two quarters, especially the second quarter, that's up to June, the payments that were supposed to have been made we were given the option of spreading it over several months, instead of all coming into the office. Because for those payments, you had to come into the office to do the payments. It's um, this third quarter that um, there was an the introduction of the Ghana.gov system which we are um, using, which allows them to make payments online. So through their mobile phone and other means, Google and other means of making those payments so that they don't have to come to the tax office. And the interesting thing is that because of the informal nature of most of it, lockdown was actually restricted to Peter Accra and the Kumasi generally. So Accra and Kumasi. So those outside those regions were able to continue with their work. There were issues, people still had the because of the social distancing and other things, but it was not as bad as when it was in Accra. Because the lockdown was for too long and Ghanaians, we adapt very quickly to, to, to systems. And so somehow we've been able to manage to adapt to and keep on doing some of the things we are supposed to do, um, carrying out our civic duties. And I think we can commend Ghanaians for doing that, at least that um, within the crisis, they've also sort of helped in the way they can, whichever way they can, those who are making their payments, they're going about uh, making sure that they are complying. I think we can congratulate them on that. It's been a big help in how far we have gone in maintaining revenue. Um, one of the other things that was done, and that one is, well, for example, we also decided policy-wise that- Daniel, not in, to catch you, but you have one minute more. One minute, okay, that's fine. So um, policy-wise, we also introduced the VAT uh, relief for those who contributed to the COVID fund. And those um, who also gave donations for COVID alleviation, you got an income tax um, cut, or you could um, take that one as an expense. Um, for those who were hard hit by COVID, you could assess their pension funds without having to pay tax on it. And those are things that I believe have, help, have helped us, both taxpayers and governments, to mitigate some of the effects of COVID and carry us forward. So I think I'll stop here for the meantime. I'm sure there will be the opportunity to add a few things. And when we were looking at future, what we are looking at in the future, I'm sure I can add some of those things. Because the, the future is what is now the important part of it, how do we go forward? Um, thank you very much for that, Daniel. That was very insightful. But on the as for the when it comes to national policy, it's only one person who can make national policy and, and implement it. That is government. 
the rest of us can make suggestions and recommendations. We can engage, but we don't have legal authority to make um, le uh, national policy. Only one person has legal authority to make national policy, and that's government. And then when government makes the, 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 the policy, we all have to, 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 to fall in line. At this stage, I'll bring in Dr. Ali Nachia. As I noted earlier on, Dr. Ali Nachia is a, a senior lecturer at the University of Ghana School of Law, and he has vast experience and knowledge from both practice and academia. So Dr. Ali Nachia, let's have your perspectives on the tax issues raised from the, from the perspective of the private sector person who is struggling to breathe amidst COVID-19, and also from the, the perspective of the revenue administrator who is also struggling to keep their head above, above the water in this, in this um, um, pandemic whilst uh, taking into consideration some of the points raised by our previous two panelists. Thank you very much, Dr. Alina Chia, for joining us. Thank you very much, and uh, we welcome all participants. Uh, from the perspective of the private individual or the taxpayer, I would say that in as much as the government effort of meeting them halfway is commendable in terms of extending the time for filing of tax returns, for example, there was one area that was not addressed. Yes, penalties were waived, but what we forgot to deal with was the interest. Because under the law, interest cannot be waived by the Commissioner General. So it is understood that all he could do was to waive penalties for any late filing. But what would be significant to the taxpayer is the interest for paying late. And that was what was missing for me. And then also, if you look at it from the perspective of the revenue, which is struggling to meet its target, notwithstanding the news we read today that the customs division has exceeded its revised target. Once you mention that, then it brings to question whether the targets are indeed realistic or whether the targets should have been even revised. Knowing very well that when COVID started, we realized that impact and attention was rather on the human beings. And so if you look at all the restrictions on travels and movements, it apparently did not affect goods, which is what is of concern to customs. So I would have no doubt that they wouldn't have significant impact seeing that they are exceeding the revised target. But as Daniel Noel mentioned, if you come to the direct tax component, there will be significant impact on the revenue by way of the employee taxes, PAYE, because there were no increases in salaries. People had to take pay cuts, some had to lay off workers. So we would see that aspect. And if you look at um, what he, uh, Daniel Noel mentioned on transport, then you will see significantly because of the closure of borders, issues of the tax from the airport in terms of travels would also be affected. So there will be a balancing act if customs is to exceed and domestic tax is going down. Then, of course, we will try to look at the net effect. Then talking about the measures again, Daniel Nguyen mentioned the issue about the tax uh, exemption that was granted if persons were to access their pension funds. The challenge there was that conditions that were set for a person to prove that 
he or she is losing the job by way of the impact of COVID before you would qualify. For me, it's a bit stringent. And then thinking about that, it brings to question that why don't we look at reforms in our pensions law? Why should it necessarily be the case that I go on pension before I can access contributions I am making? COVID is trying to give us a pointer as it is in other jurisdictions of unemployment benefits. Can we start thinking about unemployment benefits so that it's my contribution? I am not on pension, but I've been severely hit, maybe whether temporarily laid off or circumstantially put aside. I should be having access to that money. If it would affect what, if I finally go on pension, I would get, so be it, but I must survive in this trying time. So that is one thing I would think that we should be thinking of as a nation going forward, whether we could amend or review our pension laws to make it available for people to access while they are temporarily in, in a difficulty. Then we also come to look at the fact that task compliance comes to question. Indeed, when I look at the incentives government rolled out, especially looking at some of the exemptions, the bailouts, I was wondering why a criteria could not be used that to qualify for the bailout, you should have been compliant with your taxes. That way, people who are not task compliant would be encouraged to try to keep their records and do the right thing. Already, we have a situation where from the records and statements by the Minister of Finance, if you look at our tax paying population of over six to 6.5 million, if we have less than 1.5 to 2 million paying taxes or complying with the tax laws, then it means if we could get the excess of over 4 million to also be compliant, we should be on the way to solving our domestic resource mobilization challenges. So compliance should have been a criteria to doling out the support. Otherwise, what happens is that compliant taxpayers do not see the benefit of being straight up. So why wouldn't they join the underground economy and cause the revenue a lot of more trouble looking for them and running after them? And as Daniel Noel mentioned, if you look at the informal sector, the impact was not that significant because they are not contributing so much. That raises another nagging problem we've been challenged with as a country, the 80-20 paradox, where research shows that only 20% of taxpaying population contribute 80% of revenue, whereas 80% of taxpayers contribute only 20. And that typically encapsulates the informal sector. So you realize that the big corporate entities, the banks, the insurance companies, the mining, petroleum, they form 20% yet contribute 80%. And then you come down to look at the informal sector research shows are between 70 to 80% of the economy contributing only 20%. So if we are to ensure compliance so that we get the 80% reduced to even 60, what it will mean is that we have 20% of the informal now joining the formal economy, then we will change the paradox to a 60-40. That would even not have been bad for an economy. So these are lessons that I think COVID 
is showing to us. Then also we come to look at the issue of tax profiling, how we profile the taxpayers. Because if we were relying so much on certain sectors like mining, petroleum, and the financial sector, and the services sector, the telcos, information now will let us know that a certain segment of taxpayers is now leading the economy, the digital economy, ICT. Even this discussion we are doing is now on Zoom. People are doing it on Teams. Who are the providers of these kind of services? What is their income base? And so we need to look at whether we have to repost profile. And then also you look at why the relief was given in terms of a reduction in the communication service tax so that all these tools can be easily accessible to the private businessman to counter the impact of COVID. But at the same time, it means that those who would use all these facilities are those going to earn the income. If people have, like Casa Prepo, has changed one production line from alcoholic beverages to hand sanitizers, it tells you that then those who are producing hand sanitizers, nose masks, face masks, and all those PPEs are then going to also come in as income earners even within this COVID period. And that is why the GRE may have to look at the reprofiling and, and see that it is time certain sectors now also come to take the lead in trying to help us recover as a country. So I would say that in, in, in terms of this, I was looking at one, the SNIT component or the pension rearrangement. I'm looking at tax compliance and also the taxing of the digital economy, which I know Daniel Nguyen and his team and Jamra, uh, the Commissioner of Domestic Tax and his team are working on. But then we need to speed up because as we go gradually out of COVID, these should have been put in place within this COVID period so it can roll off when we, we resume. Knowing very well, scientists are telling us we'll live with the virus for the next two to three years it should be a planning phase for us and then a rollout and testing phase so that after the two years, three years, we should be on the road. And we shouldn't make it temporary so that after COVID, we go back to old ways. Now that we are making people file online, people using ICT tools to discuss and hold meetings with the GRE, it is good we continue that trajectory and not relapse when COVID is, is over. And then lastly, I was looking at the point where uh, partner Evelyn mentioned in terms of the doing business. Yes, as Daniel Noel mentioned, it's an indicator, but of course that is the same for CPI and per capita income. Whether they are good indicators or not, they are the guiding principles. So I was thinking that with the COVID to ease the burden on taxpayers, we would have re-looked at our uh, national health insurance levy and the get fund levy, which we've made non-refundable or non-claimable by taxpayers. It all adds to their cost of doing business, which is affecting our ranking. Thank you very much for these initial comments. Thank you very much, Dr. Ali Nachia. Um, and keep your questions coming in the Q and A session or in the chat box. I'll come to them shortly and then put them to our panelists. But before I come to the questions, let's also discuss labor. Labor is very important, um, um, everything. Whether post-COVID-19, we all must work because we all must eat. So labor is one of the issues that we, we have to, to look at. 
So I want us to next look at labor and I want um, um, Angela to, to take this one. Angela is a partner of the corporate commercial department of the law firm Bentiential Lecher in Ankoma. And as I noted earlier on, she heads the pensions, employment and immigration and business and industry practice groups. Angela has over 19 years experience in legal practice and she has advised both international and local clients on employment, pensions and immigrations, immigrations law, as well as business and, and industry. So she's going to be sharing with us very rich experiences from practice as, on some of the labor issues um, 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 that we, are, we, we will have to deal with post COVID-19. Now, Angela, we, we know that COVID-19 has wrecked havoc on the global economy. It has disrupted global supply chains, constricted demand for goods and services, and negative, negatively affected the aviation, hospitality, and general services industry. Some have also reported low turnover and then relatively huge wage bills, which have left employers with a raft of employment law concerns. Chief among these concerns are whether our employment laws are agile enough to assist the employers navigate these um, uncertain times. So Angela, in 10 minutes, I want you to share with us your perspectives on how the pandemic affects labor relations and then whether our laws are able to navigate these times and what you think we must do to make it better, a balance for both employers and workers. Thank you very much for joining us, Angela. Thank you very much, Clara. Um, thank you for the kind words. Uh, good afternoon to all, to all our listeners. Um, thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to come to this, this platform. From a, a labor um, practice uh, perspective, yes, the COVID-19 um, pandemic brought a lot of confusion uh, in the early days um, Employers didn't know what to do. Uh, we're stuck between a situation where you had laws that didn't fully address the issues that we're confronted with, and also between the employment contracts that also did not fully address the situations. So we have the certain solutions that the law provided, which were to allow employees to go on compulsory annual leave, which is a statutory right. Um, yes, under the Labor Act, you could, the, the, the employer had to give notice to the employee to go and leave, but the law allows you to override that. And, and in a situation where you couldn't, that was one of the business solutions that employers could, could resort to. Of course, that was not a very viable solution because it was in the short term. In a situation where you had offices closing for weeks or more than a few weeks, then that solution was not very practical. Then again, we had employers resorting to the other measures in relation to terminations of employment. You could either do a simple termination, which was also not viable in terms of the fact that you were then confronted with mass terminations, or you had to go to the redundancy provisions. That also comes with it costs and um, these situations did not seem to be very, very good business solutions. In between these three solutions, you had the situations that the employment contract did not address. 
And so you have, and also the law did not address. And so you had employers now asking employees to take an unpaid leave of absence with or without salary or with a reduced salary. These are not provided for by the law. And therefore you had to agree these with your employees or with the unions if your employees were unionized. So we realized that there was a big gap and there was also no clear path or direction from government on that we had a lot of queries from employers asking if there were any measures that government had put in place to address these situations. Well, there was none. Yes, there were some interventions in relation to direct income support for the frontline health workers, et cetera. But the majority of employees were left to and, and, and were left to fend for themselves in relation to dealing with the, the their employers. Now, so we think that from a labor practice perspective, it is now time for us to take a critical look at the employment contract. The employment contract needs to address certain issues and make way, for example, to either vary the terms to include some of these business solutions that the employers resorted to, or even in certain situations, even sign new terms and conditions of employment. I think also that in terms of um, policy, we, we, we need to look at government intervention. The first point that I made earlier on, we realized that there was nothing specific from government to address payment of salaries. It seemed that one of the challenges from government, from employers was to pay uh, salaries of, of um, um, employees and also social security contributions. So we realized that there has to be some kind of intervention. And I agree with Ali in the, in the context of looking at unemployment benefits. In that regard, I know that government is planning to put in place an unemployment insurance um, scheme. I think that that is a step in the right direction. It is something that we should load. And I'm praying that that is something that the government would um, uh, commit to and implement. We also, in terms of the employment contract, it looks like we, have, we now have to look at including some of these provisions that would normally be found in a commercial contract. And I'm talking about what we refer to as force majeure provisions. These provisions allow the contract of employment to be suspended for a period until the uh, a disruption is resolved. I think that it is now time for us to be looking at including these provisions in the employment, um, in the employment contract. In terms of um, positive or transformational impacts, if you would want to call it that way, I see that one of the things that has come to stay is the work from home or teleworking um, uh, issues. I think that right now it is time for employers to understand that um, working from the office is not always, it's, it's not something that we should be frowning upon or running away from. And there are several matters that we need to be discussing in relation to working from home or implementing um, teleworking policies. Employers now have to make sure that you have that in place. As to whether we should regulate those uh, policies, well, it is debatable. And I'm sure that along the lines, we will probably uh, take a look at that and see how, how that would, would, would work. I think that's, that's all I have for now.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, Angela. And thank you very much for, for keeping within the time as well. That was very rich. And we are happy to know that the suggestions that we can look at and continue the debate for all of our, our benefits. Now, um, Mr. Um, Ousu Eule, we would like to have your thoughts also on the employer-employee relationship, particularly in your other submission, when you were, you were speaking your opening remarks, you talked about a survey that PwC is doing as well and some of your findings. If you can share briefly some, some more of the findings on that with us and then relate it to workers and particularly um, employees and how we could at least some perspectives on what we could do with respect to employees, the employer-employee relationship in post-COVID-19 um, um, or during the pandemic as well, because the pandemic isn't, it doesn't look like it is going away anytime soon. So Kingsley. Kingsley, uh, I think you are on mute. So if you can unmute yourself. Hello. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, I think we are having challenges hearing things like this. Okay, so we'll move. Um, uh, once we try and fix whatever the issue is with it, with Kingsley's mic, and then we'll come back um, to Kingsley. Said before we go to um, corporate Hello. regulation. Yes. Hello, Clara. Yes. Hello, Clara. I can I can hear you now. I can hear you. Okay. Okay. So then, yes. Let's go then. Yeah. So I was saying that actually, um, Angela has done just a great justice to the I mean the issue on labor. You know, and um, in terms of employee and employer relationship, I think from, from my experience, the re at the heart of it is really the relationship that was set out in the contract of employment with these employees. You know, I mean, what, what, what I have seen um, working with a lot of employers is that most of these employment contracts actually indicated that their place of work is the office. Then at the outbreak of the, the pandemic, you realize that it is no longer safer to work you know, from, from office. The home too, for most of Ghanaian workers, wasn't also safer or even appropriate. So most employees, had to incur additional costs, right? They had to incur additional costs in setting up their workstations, investment in technology, Wi-Fi, in order to be able to work remotely. Some businesses and employers actually agreed to take up some costs relating to um, the use of technology. But then most of the employees went out of their way to actually incur or invest more in, within that space. Then the regulator, the regulator of um, labor, National Labor Commission, right? National Labor Commission. There are matters um, relating to labor disputes 
that must be taken to them. During the outbreak, or yeah, during the outbreak of the pandemic and after now, if you need to deal with them, you have to go there in person. Online platforms have not been set up. How do employees who are aggrieved, you know, assess services from the Labor Commission? That, I think that for me remains a big issue. And as we um, continue to look at our lives in this post-COVID times, the National Labor Commission, you know, need a bit of um, investment around remote assessing of their services. Mm -hmm. I should be able to lodge a complaint remotely without any issue from my home or from wherever I am. And they should be able to report or revert to me within a short period of time without any issue. So, so, so for me, I think um, these are the two points I would like to make in addition to the points that um, Angela made, but she covered most of, most of the issues here. Okay, thank you very much, um, um, uh, Kingsley. So before we'll be coming to the questions, I can see some questions in the Q&A session. We'll be looking at the questions shortly. But before we look at the questions, let's discuss corporate regulation. We all have to survive and some regulation has to, has to happen as well because we have regulated sector. To help us discuss um, corporate regulation, we have Seth Asante. Seth is a partner at Bentiential Lecture and Ankuma. And as I noted earlier on, he heads both the financial institutions and capital market practice group as well as the energy and infrastructure practice group. His practice focuses on finance, private equity, capital markets, banking, and general corporate practice. Seth is also a lecturer in company law at the, the, the Ghana School of, of, of Law. And his students love him a lot, I, I have to say. His students love him a lot, and so do I. Seth taught me company, company law at, at the law school. Seth, Seth, we know that businesses are struggling, yet there are regulations to be complied with. In 10 minutes, share with us your perspectives on the impact of this pandemic on corporate regulation, considering the pre-existing legal and regulatory framework, and what can be done to help businesses and entities thrive. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, Clara, and good afternoon to everyone. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be part of this panel. I think when the pandemic struck, I was personally very concerned about how clients were going to comply. I think the first concern was really disruption, and the disruption comes in various forms. I think key is just general compliance. Secondly, um, in relation to just existence, just being able to survive. I, I think when you look at the, the our legislative framework, we have, we have actually coped quite well. So if the question is asked whether we need you know, specific legislative reform to deal with the issues that this pandemic has brought, I don't think so. I think what this pandemic has actually shown is that we, have actually, we actually have quite a good legal framework and we have to just use it well. So if you, if you take a look back, when in April, for, when we had the 
Corporate Insolvency and Restructuring Act um, come, into, come into force. Now, many people thought that one of the things the pandemic was going to lead to were companies needing rescue. Um, and that law, of course, provides for um, a, 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 you know, a scheme for companies to be um, assisted to be restructured when they are facing financial problems. But to my knowledge, I am not aware of any company that has um, um, used the, the, the framework. I, I haven't worked on one. I haven't been, no client has inquired from us um, to, to use it to be able to be, to res to be rescued. Now, when you go back to um, just general compliance, if you take the Companies Act, one, a lot of the questions that we got asked, um, in, remember that in March, when um, these issues, the pandemic started and the lockdown um, came into, into force, that was a time most of the companies, especially the public companies, were going to file their annual returns um, and going to hold their um, AGMs. So the question was, how are you going to hold these AGMs um, because of the, 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 the social distancing and the restrictions on, 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 on physical meetings? And as most of you would be aware, the company's registry came out with a notice allowing companies to hold virtual meetings. Now that, that was allowed within the legislative framework that, that we had under the Companies Act. The SEC being the regulator also of public companies um, who issue securities to, to the public, also came out with guidelines also in May, setting out detailed rules on how companies can hold virtual meetings. A lot of companies were able to use this, this mechanism to hold their meetings. The timelines for, for, um, for um, issue for, for filing returns were extended. And so I think that what was shown is that the regulators understood the, the, the agency, they reacted quite quickly and uh, they reacted within the, the, the framework without needing additional legislative response to deal with the problems that, 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 that we had. Now, I think when you look at, um, in, in terms of fi the, the financial issues, the Bank of Ghana responded, um, but there, there was a reduction in reserve rates that allowed banks provide more liquidity um, to the market. Most banks um, actually provided for um, clients to come back to them to, to renegotiate if, they, if the COVID impact was such that they could not service their, their financial obligations. And this was individual um, for, for, for various um, banks. Now, there are simple things that clients kept on worrying about. For instance, signing documents electronically. People get kept, kept on asking the question, can we, that do, do Ghanaian law, does Ghanaian law allow documents to be signed electronically? And the answer was yes. We have the electronic transactions that allows that and people could sign documents electronically. Clients did that. So I actually, well, I, I, my, my general impression was actually one of significant comfort that we were, our legislative regime is quite resilient to allow regulators and to allow clients to be able to use corporates to use existing tools to, to make decisions and to be able to run their business without significant disruption. Um, and so I, I think that it is not that we need um, a legislative response. Actually, I think that regulators should be aware of the tools that are available. Now, I think part of the impact is really um, apart from looking at the compliance regime and the financial regime, it's actually transactional. I think I'm a transaction lawyer and um, the impact of COVID on companies in relation to doing transactions is significant. So as lawyers, um, when we are now looking at transactions, we are doing due diligence. One of the key issues that we are looking at is how is COVID applied, how is it, what is the impact on, this, on, on, on a company that is a due diligence target? 
what the company's compliance ability, its, its financial um, strength, when we are doing transactions, the impact of things that almost look mundane, like material adverse clauses, become quite important because the question is that, is the transaction going to be able to close simply because there's a COVID impact that will impact the, the valuation of the business. There's a lot of discussions that in, in transactions that lawyers now have to get involved in in relation to price adjustments, um, in relation to acquisition transactions. So what's the general impact that I, I, have, I have seen is really that our, um, for instance, our companies act from the, the registrar's powers were used quite well in relation to, to, to virtual meetings. So in, in my view, um, what, the, what this situation has shown uh, to us is that there, there is within our, our legal system um, a lot of potential um, to, for innovation. And that doesn't, the, 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 to achieve the, the type of innovation that we need, it doesn't need um, legislative change. It just needs regulators to be aware of the tools and use them. I think COVID has opened our eyes to that. And I think that uh, the, the landscape um, is, is quite resilient and, and, and we can actually be effective. We have been able to manage transactions um, uh, during this time. In terms of, um, in some of my colleagues on, on the panel um, have talked about interactions with regulators. We, we have had dealings with the SEC, with the GSC, we've had dealings with the Bank of Ghana, and all regulators in the course of, of this pandemic have been willing to use um, ICT tools, have Zoom meetings with us, we submitted documents um, um, electronically, complied with requirements electronically without having to go to their offices. And I think all these tools have shown that our regulators have been quite forward looking in being able to provide a compliance framework and an environment that um, recognizes the difficulties that we face. So I am quite comforted by what, by what we have. I don't think we need legislative responses. I think we just need to be aware of the tools we have and use them effectively. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, um, Seth, for, for, the, for those rich contributions and keeping to time as well. We are very grateful. And we'll be coming back um, with questions and then for more on clarifications. But for now, I just want us to go back. I want to go to the questions that our participants have and then, then we'll come back to the discussion. There's a, a question from Wilma. She, she is a bit long, so I'll just read it out. She notes that over the years, widening the tax net has been one of the enduring challenges. With the onset of COVID-19, governments rightly recognized the need to provide support for vulnerable persons and small businesses. But many in these categories historically fall outside the tax net. Without seeking to propose same, I noted that in some states, COVID-19 reliefs depended on the tax credentials of beneficiaries. Given the escalation um, of IT solutions, data systems, money transfer platforms, ETC, what is the current status and what are the perspectives of our panelists on fast tracking the expansion of the tax net so as to move us to a more equitable tax system? Now, which of you would like to take this? Kingsley. 
I'll take Kingsley, I'll take Daniel and, and Ali, I'll take okay. Angela, I'll take Seth as well, yes. This, okay, the reason why I would be happy to have perspectives on this is sure we all know that as, as for the, the tax net, it's, it's a burning issue all the time. The few people who have to pay taxes all the time complain of being overburdened, and then we are always looking at how we can widen the tax net. So, yeah. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Clara. I, I think when um, Prof, I mean, Dr. Ali spoke initially, I mean, he did speak extensively on, on this. The fact that only 20% um, of potential taxpayers are actually contributing 80% to tax revenue and, and vice versa. Um, so what can we do? Basically, I mean, if I look at Wilma's question, she's talking about vulnerable, vulnerable persons and then small businesses. I mean, which have historically been outside the tax, I mean, outside the tax net. I think for smaller businesses, also for small businesses, they've done so voluntarily because there are no exemptions or there have not been exemptions that exclude small businesses. You know, so, so that's the first point to make. Basically, they've either been avoiding or evading taxes. What we need to do straight up around small businesses is, is really to find them. Again, Dr. Ali talked about profiling. Just, you know, just on that before we get to the profiling bit, on the small businesses, are they yes. avoiding or evading? It's, is it easier for them to comply with the tax, their tax burdens? You, I, I, here, I would like you to, to actually, the survey you talked about that you did, um, um, yes. So let's, let's look at it from that angle. How easy was it for taxpayers to comply with their tax obligations? How, how long did it take them to comply? How many days, how many hours? And then we can see whether it's easy for small businesses to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. So if, if we take the paying taxes report of PwC and the World Bank that I spoke about initially, where averagely a business or a taxpayer would take 222 hours to comply with taxes in a year, right? For, for a, a fresh graduate or for, for a young person who has started up a new business, that would, be, that would certainly be too much. You know, that certainly will be too much. And, and this, these smaller businesses and their owners will grapple with even knowledge of the law, you know, to start off and the full, and the full compliance of it. So, I mean, for me, um, the best practice I know around smaller businesses is really to give them tax breaks. What the developed countries will do, you know, is to encourage, you know, innovation, startups, you know, to begin flourish, expand, get to a point where you can then begin to tax them. But the way our tax laws are written, once you set up a company and you begin to look for contracts, and you go and register with GRA, GRA will ask you to bring a self-assessment return. And in the self-assessment return, they expect that you will project an income and the tax you'll be paying in that year and on, on quarterly basis. But here is a startup, here is a small business starting. For the first year, second year, it may not even have business. I have personally registered small, some small businesses where they have struggled to pay the initial assessment GRA has raised on them. So certainly having 
tax breaks for smaller businesses. We would encourage them to walk into the doors of the revenue to register so that so you would agree uh -huh. so you would agree under that circumstance that it is not the case that the small businesses are necessarily avoiding or evading taxes we just have a system that is burdensome on them to comply um i think i probably have to disagree a bit with you because okay so much as much as this is the best practice or this is what most countries are doing if we don't have it here you know businesses and taxpayers generally still have the obligation to comply you know yes, the and good then thing is from what you are saying like the, let's take the projection you are talking about so then how do they flourish the little capital they have they should come and put it in taxes and fold up or fizzle out yeah so so yeah i mean what what should be happening is a situation where, or basically, let me step back. If you don't have income, you cannot be taxed. We all know that if you don't have income, you can't and should not be taxed. So if you walk to a GRA office and there is an assessment that is raised upon you, when you know for a fact that you do not expect any income, you need to politely explain your situation to them. I have done that several times. And I'm happy to report that the revenue in most cases will listen to you and will change their position. So, so there are two things. One, we want the best practice of giving tax breaks to smaller businesses, but we also want to say that, oh, I mean, we should, we, should, we should encourage businesses or smaller businesses, even in the face of the tax, right, to still go. Because if you don't go for GRA to see you, or if GRA is also not able to see you, when you should be paying some tax, you are actually evading but not avoiding, right? So you are evading and you are not avoiding. So, but because we want to be good corporate tax citizens, we must always go, show, us up, show ourselves up, register. If, it, if there's any assessment that you feel is not reasonable, it's not justified, you talk it over with GRA, you know? So, so that, that, that's the angle I would like to cover. I mean, in terms of smaller businesses, they are, those who are doing businesses are generally engaged in activities that should either be taxed, you know, or should be exempt. But if they sit out and they do not voluntarily register because the burden of registration is on them and GRA2 is unable to identify them, they will forever be outside the tax net, right? They will forever be outside the tax net. And we cannot move the country to where we want it to be, you know? But for the vulnerable who have no income, as I indicated earlier, if you have no income, you can't be taxed, right? So um, in terms of expansion of the, of the net, you pop. Okay. Oh. I think we've lost Kingsley. Probably may not be able okay. to expand the net to them because the business activity will make it cause a situation where um, being, being vulnerable, the state must come in to support them. You know, so, okay. so these are my comments um, on it, um, yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Kingsley. Daniel, um, can we have your, your comments on what you think we can do, the question that has been asked? How do we deal with this issue of um, uh, equitable taxing? So we are able to bring a lot more people into the tax net. 
So thank you, um, Clara. Um, it's interesting and uh, the way Kingsley ended, and I think I'll start from this. We all have an obligation as citizens to pay taxes if we earn income. And I'll put it in this light. When uh, we've all been clamoring for government support during this COVID era, where's government going to get the money from? The taxes we paid or the taxes we are paying. And for those who um, had to register for the MBSSI, the small scale, all of them were required to show at least proof of having a taxpayer identification number. And remember, you had to go to a GR office and get registered. So within the month of May and June, school registration and GR registration jumped. They had hundreds of thousands of registrations, which just tells us that there are people there who really have obligations who are not doing what they should do. Um, there are, in fact, there are provisions in our laws currently that require that if you want a government service or some government service or other, require it in a bank account. The idea is to get these people, all these people to into the at least into the radar of the tax authorities so that GRA can then follow up. And with the current IT systems that are being put in place, at least we know that based on those policies, there are some improvements getting more people into the tax net. The other thing is the informal nature of our transactions. And that also is a challenge in which I think we need to start looking at Paying for services. Kinsley mentioned something which makes me. A lot of people don't know anything about paying their taxes because they are really not interested. They are not prepared to pay anybody to, to help them. And so they go muddling around till they get into trouble with the tax authorities and it becomes another battle. So as we do get people to formalize, we expect that we will gradually get more people into the tax net. This is a, a very broad topic, actually. You can spend the whole day talking talk about it. So I'll stop here. That, I'm sure Ali will add a little more as well. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Before we come to Ali, Seth, can we have your perspectives on how you, we, you think we can deal with this issue? It's, we've been worrying about it. We all complain about it. Yes. Um, so many uh, people outside the tax net. Uh, thank you, Clara. Uh, I, I think, look, this is something that um, we've had so many discussions on about. I and mean, I think even when you look at, um, let's be personal here with myself. I mean, our, our, our profession, professional, professionals um, and how many professionals are paying taxes that they are required to pay. I think Ali makes a very important point in his original submission when he talked about the profiling bit. I think part of um, uh, what the revenue administration should be doing, the tax administration should be doing, really also relates to knowing the taxpayers. I think there are so many people in the in the tax net um, or outside the tax net who, or within the tax net even, who are not maybe paying what they are supposed to pay. And therefore knowing who they are, properly profiling them, having all the data about them is, um, is important. So I think it should be really a scientific data-driven exercise where um, we, the, the, the revenue authorities are able to um, know who, um, where the pools are that they can collect taxes from. I think the ideas that we are seeing in, 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 in government policy now, digitization of services, 
connection or when you require uh, tax identification numbers to, to access government services. These are all important steps. I think when they are implemented properly, it can aid in bringing as many people within the tax net as possible. Uh, so that I've seen one of the comments, so that those who are compliant are not punished. I feel that we have quite a bit of that um, in, our, in our current tax policy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Seth. On this all important um, um, topic, I come to you, Angela. Any perspective on this, this, this uh, albatross that has been hanging on our neck for a long time that we've been discussing and not finding satisfactory solutions? Still, even in 2020, we are still grappling with the same problem. So many people outside this, the, the tax net, few people suffering. Thank you, Clara. See, I think we go back to the points that Seth made about having a lot of tools that are available to us. If you look at the Labour Act, for example, we have a provision in there that allows government to set up public employment centers. These public employment centers are supposed to pull in data on, on the labor market. Every person who is unemployed is supposed to register with these public employment centers. Now, there's also another dimension. Employers have also reporting obligations in, in, in that direction. Every employer is supposed to report to the chief labor officer in respect of employment data. Now, where am I going with this? We have governments now trying to roll out some public uh, employment centers in various regions. Government is also trying to roll out what they, the online portal about uh, um, the Ghana labor market information uh, uh, portal. Now, if we're able to strengthen these tools that we have, these resources, and we're able to pull all this information together, and we're connecting people who, are, who register for unemployment. If you're connecting somebody to get a job using the, the Ghana management information, uh, uh, Ghana, Ghana labor market information system, then of course we are connecting people to get jobs and then indirectly we are widening the tax net. That's the way that I see it. Secondly, something that we should also be looking at, if government is going to be doling out support to companies or small businesses, et cetera, then I think that we should make it a condition uh, for getting the support for some of these, for these businesses to keep people in employment. That way too, then we are widening the, 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 the tax net. <clears throat> That's uh, my initial thoughts on, on the subject. Thank you very much, Angela, for that very creative um, 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 contribution and recommendation, because particularly tax thrives on information. Mm -hmm. That thrives on information because it is with information that I always say that when you are talking about correct taxing, you are talking about the right amount of tax at the right time. So not anymore, if you, are, you should not overtax, so it shouldn't be more and it shouldn't be less. And to be able to achieve that is information. So thank you very much for, 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 for that contribution. Before I, uh, now I, I next go to Ali. Ali, to add your, um, um, to in, in your contribution, there was something I just saw, I want you to add and then just address it. Um, let me just get it. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll try and get it. There was a question from the, the Q and C um, session that I wanted you to add and then deal with it together in your response. But whilst I look for it, please, um, um, yes. Let's hear your perspective in addition. Thank you very much, Clara. You've said it all, that everything borders on information. And uh, like the first questioner asks, I think uh, 
partner Willie has mentioned it, that I addressed it when we were looking at the bailout and that we should have looked at the tax standing of the beneficiaries. And then also I did mention the efforts that are being made by tax policy unit of Daniel Noir and then GRA domestic tax, uh, Jamra on the taxation of the digital economy. So those are being addressed. But talking about the small taxpayers and tax compliance, I think we can pick lessons from other jurisdictions. In South Africa, arrangements are made so that informal sector taxpayers can decide to pay their taxes either monthly, quarterly, or annually. So you make it easy if the person is to pay 10 CDs or 50 CDs every two weeks, the burden and the pressure would not seem great than just stand at the end of the year and send them a bill of a huge figure. So we may be looking at, at that as well. Then looking at the registration that partner Willie mentioned, rightly so, it's difficult to tell somebody starting a business that make a deposit towards your tax. When I've not earned income, indeed tax is on income. And remember the law says that you pay tax on gains and profits. So if there is no gain, no profit, why should I take a part of my capital to deposit towards my tax? And that should be looked at carefully. Then on the former informal uh, sector, my senior set Asante mentioned something interesting. I call the professionals the formal informal economy. They, they are professionals, so they know their rights and they know the law and play along with the law. I'm looking at, look at the Ghana Bar Association, Institute of Chartered Accountants, Chartered Institute of Taxation, Medical and Dental Council, with like uh, my senior said mentioned, with the taxpayer identification number, how is GRA liaising with these professional bodies to ensure that, for example, if you don't have a compliance level of your task clearance certificate, your practice certificate cannot be renewed. And that is the basis for your earning income. So obviously, it will let them comply. Are they doing these stakeholder consultations? I keep mentioning it a lot because I pioneered it in South Africa. And today, the South African Institute of Tax Professionals is so much working closely with, with the Treasury, that is the Ministry of Finance. Why? Because they've come to realize that they need to file, indeed, you need to file your tax clearance certificate before they renew your practicing certificate. And since you are representing taxpayers, you need to be straight before you can represent somebody. And that is one thing we can look at in, the, in terms of the professional sector. But with the informal sector, again, as uh, said mentioned with the TIN, the vice president has indicated that if we link the TIN to your Ghana card, and gradually we have only one identity for a person. Your TIN is your Ghana card number, is your voter's ID, is your Senate contribution. You can't get lost in the system. And that solves your problem, Clara, that now you have all the information. Angela mentioned it. You have all the information in a document. If you want to seek a job and we want to profile you, we have your number. We can trace you per your task contribution and whatever. Because if you do the analysis, you realize that have we checked if the number of people registered in the database of SNIT are the same or equal or close to whatever GRA has 
as people paying employee taxes. We have so many things to do with information, as Angela mentioned. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Aline Lachia. The, just briefly, in, in 30 seconds, the question was whether you, uh, you think um, from Timor, he wants to know whether from your perspective, don't you think that indirect taxes are the way to go? We are struggling with direct taxes. So why shouldn't we look at indirect taxing in 30 seconds? Well, that is why I keep saying that if anybody says that some people don't pay taxes in Ghana, it's a bit of a false statement because anything you buy, there is a tax on it. That's the indirect tax. So one, you can look at indirect tax, but remember indirect tax is also part of the cost to business. Because whatever inputs the manufacturer businessman is buying to put into his business has a tax on it. So yes, indirect tax can capture anybody, whether you are informal or informal. Because once you buy the item, it's on it. But the question is, we need to be careful the kind of services and goods that the indirect tax will be hitting. That is what I would say. Okay, thank you very much. There are still a lot of questions, but we are already, um, our time is already um, 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 not very friendly at all. So we are going to move towards um, um, the conclusions. I would entreat my panelists to also read the questions on the Q&A so that you can add uh, your responses in your concluding um, remarks. So your concluding remarks on generally, you have um, um, five minutes each to tell us your recommendations and the way going forward, as well as your, your, your concluding remarks. So I'll start with Angela. Thank you, Clara. Well, as I said already, I have um, I've talked about looking at the employment contract critically and trying to, moving forward, um, put some of these provisions in there to address the, the issues that we've had to deal with in relation to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, I'm not so sure that we need to uh, really look at our laws. Uh, I think that um, we we have a lot of laws and, and probably um, trying to um, uh, incorporate some of these things in the employment contract is probably the way the way to go. In terms of government policy, I mentioned earlier on that I the step uh, the, the government's um, commitment to putting out an, an unemployment insurance scheme is a, is a, is a step in, in, in the right direction. The reason I say this is this, you know, you have a solution. If you're going to put a, a solution uh, in, in the employer's hands to allow the employer and the employee to go on an unpaid leave, for example, um, what is the employee supposed to rely on? Yes, government provided the tax exemptions on, on, on tier, three, uh, tier three provident funds. Uh, but the question is this, not every business had tier three, not every business has tier three provident fund. And perhaps it is now, it, 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 we should look at making tier three provident fund mandatory for the employer so that the employee has something to rely on in, 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 such, in such times. Uh, above all, I think that I've commented on work, work from home policy. I think that it should be regulated. Kinsley mentioned um, costs and appropriate materials and all that. Well, you have those provisions under the Labor Act. Under the Labor Act, the employer is supposed to provide 
all the equipment and materials that the employee is supposed to work with. Yes, there are several matters that need to be discussed. And so we probably need to regulate reinvestment of costs, et cetera. And in some cases, we might even have to, to include industrial insurance. I mean, something akin to the workman's compensation that you would find if you're working in an office or you have to go somewhere. I mean, these issues also raise cybersecurity and, 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 um, and data protection, protection issues. But I think that if we have all these in mind, um, post-COVID, we should be looking at, um, we should be able to navigate the, 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 the current um, um, situation. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Angela. Next, we'll have Daniel. Daniel you, Daniel, you have six minutes. I just realized that I was supposed to come back to you to take a point you were going to make and I didn't. So please make that point and then also let us have your recommendations and concluding remarks in six minutes. Okay, I'll actually make the point as part of my conclusion. And I mentioned earlier that um, going forward, what are we really looking at in terms of government policy? And one of the things that we talked about early this year, as part of 2020, was to come out with a medium-term revenue policy, overarching, which really would guide what government wants to do. Government hasn't changed its purpose. The purpose is support production with taxes, support them to generate revenue. The revenue moves into employment, it moves into people's hands, tax it at that point. And so that is government's general view. Now in that, it means that you need to be, and you also, Angela also mentioned the fact that you want to be equitable, you want to be fair. Collecting the right tax from the right person at the right moment. Nothing less, nothing more. There's no need to overtax people. Make it convenient for people, and we've had that conversation. Make it convenient for taxpayers to be able to pay using as many channels as possible as are available, whether it's mobile. And there are a lot of inter um, electronic interventions that, are, that have come. More are coming in. Rather, you can use, um, uh, you can use mobile, you can use the USSD. There are several means in which you can use to make payments. And all these, more of these things are going to be rolled out as we go along. The, another thing that's been, that we talked about voluntary compliance. There's been, uh, there's, a, there's a clause in the Revenue Administration Act, which actually a lot of people didn't know about, but we sort of enhanced in terms of voluntary compliance. Now, basically the law has been assented to, the, the rules are being uh, finalized, but um, you can now walk into any GRA office voluntarily Declare taxes that are owed. That's what GRA comes to you. I owe these taxes for whichever reason they are. And you can make those payments without a penalty. Um, Ali talked about the interest bit of it. That is also still under consideration. At least for the first part, when it comes to the penalty issue, you can walk into any tax office and um, declare, do a declare voluntarily and make that payment. And so these are a few of the things that are being looked at in terms of helping taxpayers. The other side of it is that with these um, leveling of the field and making things easier, GRE, the policy is that the GRE should now also be more um, assertive in terms of enforcement. Because if you are making it easy for people to make payments and fulfill their obligations, if they don't, then you can go after them with all canons firing. Because 
then it means that they'll be putting others at a disadvantage. So with all these interventions, we expect that there, there'll be some level of reversal of the 2018 over a period of time. But let's know that under the Ghana CARES program, you're supposed to move tax revenue from the current 13% of GDP to 20%. Digital taxation aspect of it, the new areas that are coming up, which um, Dr. Abdullah and others have mentioned, are things that we are all, all going to look at. And I say that we are stakeholders in this week because some of the ideas will come from those of you who are practitioners. And for those of us as professionals, there's a lot of matching going on. And I think that uh, I'll say that it will be in your interest to fulfill your obligations before GRE fully comes over. Because there are other policies we are doing on the self-employed, which I'm sure come next year, a lot of these things will come up and will come out. And you don't want to be on the other side of the tax laws. The penalties can be very stiff if GRE decides to throw everything at you. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, um, Daniel. Next, we have um, Seth, your recommendations and concluding remarks. Thank you, Clara. I mean, I think um, I, I have been um, comforted by the resilience our systems um, have shown. I, I think that what is important is for regulators to continue to be flexible and forward-looking in the application of the tools that they have um, I think most regulators have now allowed online submission of returns, filings, and other compliance requirements. I've seen one of the questions in the Q&A about um, 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 these submissions, and a lot of regulators have allowed it. I know that there are some challenges at the company's registry, but I think it's being worked on. Even um, I, I know that I think in Lance, they are working on online submission of various documentation. So there is a quite a good um, and forward-looking consciousness about with our regulators. We don't need um, changes in law. What we need is just um, for our regulators to be forward-looking. And what I see is promising. And I think that we've shown quite some strong resilience. And I, I, I think that we can continue um, in that uh, trajectory. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Seth. Next, um, Kingsley, can we have your recommendations and concluding remarks? Kingsley, Kingsley, you probably need to unmute yourself. You are muted. Yes. Thank, thank you very much, Clara. Yes, so I'm actually starting from where Seth ended, right? I mean, if we look at all the laws that we have, regulating businesses and activities of taxpayers are quite, quite enormous and comprehensive enough, you know, to respond to the needs of the post-COVID world that we're living in, right? So um, we don't need so much, we don't need, um, well, we need little or no change at all. Um, the first recommendation I'll make is that we have within the Revenue Administration Act, a provision that says that tax documents should be maintained in Ghana. I think we need to be a bit flexible. Technology has run ahead of us. There's cloud computing. The multinationals and the local companies that have the financial muscles are able to keep documents in the cloud, right? The servers are not sitting here, but you can access the information at the click of a button. 
the law should be able, able to adapt to if like the changing times. If you force people to keep information um, in Ghana and the situation we have is that they are keeping hard copies in their offices and most of them don't even have off-sites, right? Working from home remotely in times like this, it, 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 is, it becomes very difficult to assess information, you know? So we need to look at section 27 of our Revenue Administration Act, which really, I mean, basically requires businesses and taxpayers to keep documents in Ghana. It should be permissible to keep documents you know, in the cloud, as long as you can assure the revenue authority that when they come calling, because the law actually gives them access to your records, when they come calling, you can actually click a button and make it available to them. The next point is, and that touches a bit on Francis Timor's point as to the future direction of indirect tax. Look, the many, many international organizations have said that the way to go is indirect as opposed to direct tax. And I, I, and I suspect that it is actually in pursuance of that, that the government of Ghana then and the Revenue Authority passed the Physical Electronic Device Act. Okay, this law has been passed. Essentially, um, what the law sought to do is to make it possible for people not to be issuing hard copy VAT invoices, you know, um, to, to, to buyers. So when you go to the till, sorry, when you go to a business, you don't need hard copy VAT invoice. The, the, there will be point of sale devices that businesses will set up and will be hooked onto GRA platforms. Every sale that will be made by these businesses, GRA can actually remotely monitor the amount. So that's also another way of even adding everybody to the task net or broadening the task net. So we've passed a law the law has not been implemented. I think we should quickly, as a matter of urgency, implement it. And it will also help in terms of taxpayers not carrying or not even touching, having contact with this, this hard copy in invoices. Then, then the next point is really, um, again, coming back to the Revenue Administration Act. The Revenue Administration Act, when it was passed, actually, envisage a situation where GRA can actually deal with taxpayers remotely. So there is a provision on electronic um, documentation or document system. Just as in the Companies Act in section 378, there's also a provision for the registrar to roll out, you know, electronic platforms to engage, you know, um, how do you call it? People who are doing businesses with them remotely. So I, my plea is really to fast track the full and complete implementation of these electronic platforms so that taxpayers, you know, will find it more easy, you know, easier to deal with um, these um, regulators. Okay. Maybe the final... Thank you. Okay. okay. <laughs> so it, no, it, I mean, it's your final <laughs> point in, in 20 seconds, and then we move to Dr. Ali Nachia. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there's also a provision in the Revenue Administration Act, which actually allows the Revenue Authority to defer the time or extend the time of tax payment to 12 months. What the revenue did was to extend and waive penalty, you know, up to June. 
So what what I mean what I, what I need to or what what I'm sending the message I want to send across to um, our participants and listeners is, is this and and taxpayers in general. You you can make an appeal or a plea to the revenue to extend the time that you would be I mean you should be paying tax for at least one year. People should begin taking advantage of that, and I okay. believe that the revenue authority will listen. I mean, okay. if you are able to present a satisfactory case, yeah. So that's all okay. for me. Thank you very much, yeah, for having me. Thank you very much, Kingsley. We are very grateful. Um, now, finally, let's take uh, Dr. Lee Nachia's recommendations and concluding remarks. Thank you very much, Clara. I think all my colleague panelists have said it all. Yes, we have very good laws, little or no work to be done. The question that is left to be dealt with is implementation. So I would move quickly to see answers to some of the questions. Uh, Mr. Ofer asked whether COVID-19 vaccine would be exempt. I think surely with the pandemic, it, it would if it is out and it's coming in. And then uh, Mr. Francis Mensah talked about deferment of tax payments. And that is what uh, partner Willi just mentioned. You can always discuss with the GRE. And then going forward, we hope the GRE would be able to relieve the payment of any penalties or interest when the deferment is arranged. I think uh, Mr. Daniel Noel will look at the policy option. And then Francis Timor mentioned something very significant. We cannot end without mentioning the issue of corruption, because if people want to be tax compliant, they read and hear how the tax revenue is being misapplied, abuse, obviously it dampens their spirit to be compliant. Then we have Madame Adole Azu talking about uh, because of social distancing, whether GRA can look at meetings online. I think they are doing that. I've had a couple of meetings on Teams with them, and they initiated it and they hosted it. So I think that is in place. And then on the issue of restructuring of taxes, I agree with uh, Mr. Teddy Komi that yes, indirect taxes, as uh, Francis Tumo mentioned, is the way that can help government have a certainty in revenue inflows, but whether we can restructure, because remember government policy is, move, is to move from taxation to production. So if you are going to impose a lot of indirect taxes that will increase cost of doing business, it will rather harm production. And then Ibrahim mentioned something I agree with Osman, he said that if uh, there can be a liaison between Registrar General Department and GRA in terms of the businesses that are registered with them, but unregistered with the GRA so that they can close that gap. So maybe because this is GRA and this is RGD, I don't think we need to change their name to another RGA. So it will be rearrangement of terms, maybe from department to authority, I don't know. Then on the issue of working from home, going forward, I want Daniel Noah to look at it policy-wise, that don't we then need to take a second look at what is private and domestic outgoing? Because ideally, all such costs happen to be treated as domestic and you can't get a deduction. But now we are working from home. How do we deal with such expenses? Would we say it's domestic and private or is business? We need to take a look at that. And so what I would leave as a guidance, okay, Fafa also mentioned, Fafa Koshiga mentioned that GRA should look at it if they can make their website interactive so they can be communicating with businesses that are setting up and giving them the ideas of what incentives they have and what reliefs they can apply for. And also updating taxpayers on their filing requirements and deadlines, such an interactive website will be helpful. 
So what I want to leave with the revenue is the guidance that uh, Mr. Setasanti mentioned. You see, if you are dealing with taxpayers, you need to categorize them into three. One are those who do not know the law and therefore don't know what to do. We try to educate them and guide them. You don't punish them as a first option. The second category, they know the law, they don't know what to do. That one, they know the law, so all they need is guidance. And the third category, they know the law, they know what to do, they won't just do it. These people are those that are to be punished. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Ali Nachia. And thank you very much to, 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 to my panelists. Now, the salient points and concluding, then what I would just want us to add is also with that we take another look at the preemptive tax. I'm talking about the one that um, when you are going to register a business, we make an estimate of how much uh, taxes you are, how much income you are likely to make and ask you to pay a deposit. I'm sure we will all agree that even that concept doesn't sit well with the concept of taxation because you pay tax on income you have made. Not, you haven't made, you haven't actually even started work. So there is no income that is made. And when that request is made, of course you are going to take from your capital um, um, to make a deposit. And if we are looking at the jurisdictions where people pay taxes and they flourish, like Kingsley mentioned along his presentation, it is because of how they have structured the regulatory system. In that your intention is for people to make profit. You want more businesses to be able to thrive and make a lot of money. Because I always say that um, um, as a tax administrator, how much, how rich or poor you are is dependent on how rich or poor your taxpayers are. If your taxpayers are very rich, of course you are going to be very rich because you'll be getting a lot more taxes. If your taxpayers are poor, of course you are not going to, 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 to get a lot. So we have to bear in mind the guidance that Dr. Lee Nachia also gave in, in terms of how we treat our taxpayers so that at the end of the day, our aim is how do we get our taxpayers to make money so that when they make a lot of money, we can get our share rather than create the, 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 the situation sometimes where we have to close down their businesses or push them out of the market and then they don't thrive. If we look at SMEs, they are not thriving. A lot of them are either fizzling out or at the same place for over 10 years. What it means is that we are not doing something right. So yes, we have to make to pay taxes, it's important. But before we pay taxes, we must make the income first. So we have to also be concerned about how we can create a system that helps us to make income. I want to thank GIZ for, for sponsoring this forum and to bring us the knowledge and information on the discussion and policy and hope that um, Daniel will lead the policy angle so that the recommendations and suggestions made here can be considered nationally and then where appropriate, we enact national, we, we put in place national policies for our collective um, benefit. I also want to thank tremendously our panelists for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today for free. We are very grateful that you made time to share this rich experience with us. We thank you for your, your, your time and we are grateful for all that you have shared today. I also thank our valuable participants for being a part of this, for engaging and for sharing your perspectives as well. Very rich discussions and suggestions coming from, 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 from our participants as well. 
I'm sure that a lot of them are going to be taken into consideration so that we together can see how um, we can make our systems much better, much convenient, much simpler for all of our, our, our people. To our faculty, students, alumni, and stakeholders, I say we are sim you are simply amazing. We are very grateful for all the time that you share with us and for all the work that you put into making the University of Ghana School of Law what it is today. Our next series is on December 17th and, and 2020. And the topic under consideration will be reimagining the place of human rights in a post-COVID-19 um, era. Make time again to join us on December 17th. We are going to have another interesting sessions. And once more, we will be looking towards to getting your perspectives as to how we push human rights at the frontier in our country and make it better. Thank you very much for joining us once more and hopefully see you again on December 17th, 2020. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you and bye-bye.